Hello, my name is Dr. Richard Libman. I am a stroke neurologist in the Department of Neurology at Northwell Health. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about the latest advances in acute stroke therapy with a focus on endovascular stroke treatment. We're going to review some of the latest innovations in acute stroke management. I have no disclosures. Here are the objectives of this presentation. We're going to talk about the early management of patients with acute ischemic stroke. We're going to focus primarily on the efficacy and safety of endovascular stroke therapy for patients who have a large artery occlusion. And we're going to touch on what is the role of IVTPA now that we have entered a new era of endovascular stroke treatment. Just to give you a little background on stroke and the toll that stroke takes in our society, there are almost 800,000 new strokes uh, in the United States each year. Uh, stroke is now the fifth leading cause of death in this country, and it is the leading cause of serious long-term disability in adults. Now, here is the specific type of stroke that we're talking about. That is patients who have a large artery occlusion intracranially. What we're referring to here is patients who have occlusions of the middle cerebral artery, the intracranial internal carotid artery, the basilar artery, or the intracranial vertebral arteries. These type of occlusions are associated with a very poor prognosis. And these blood vessels, these large arteries, when occluded, tend to have a very low spontaneous recanalization rate. In other words, they don't open up very much spontaneously, roughly 18% do. And even with IVTPA, less than 30% will actually open up. So this is kind of an intractable, extremely serious condition. Just to give you some other examples, of what happens to patients who have occlusion of a major intracranial artery. If you look at just what happens per minute, basically almost two million brain cells are lost every minute. And if you look at the extent of fiber loss, that is axons, almost 7.5 miles of axons are lost um, per minute in which a large intracranial artery remains blocked or remains occluded. I want to take you back for just a couple of minutes to remind you that until fairly recently in the history of stroke, we did not have any effective treatments for acute ischemic stroke. And all of that changed relatively dramatically in 1995 with the publication of this seminal article, TPA for Acute Ischemic Stroke, which was a multi-center trial sponsored by the NIH and in which Long Island Jewish Medical Center was the leading single center in the country participating in this trial. And this is to remind you of the main results of the IVTPA study, showing that as you look at multiple different scales which assess recovery after stroke, um, recovery was always statistically and clinically significantly better 
when a patient was treated with IVTPA than when they were not treated with IVTPA. To summarize, the NINDS-TPA study results in terms of efficacy, if you were treated with IVTPA, you had at least a 30% greater chance of minimal or no disability down the line at three months, and it so happens at a year and probably longer as well. The risk of intracerebral hemorrhage was increased with IVTPA, roughly 6% versus 0.6%. But the main finding and the thing to keep in mind is that in spite of the increased risk of intracerebral hemorrhage, mortality was not increased with IVTPA. And remember, overall outcomes were superior with TPA. However, there are certain problems or limitations with IVTPA. The main limitation, as I alluded to earlier, is that when a major artery is occluded, such as the proximal middle cerebral artery, it's very difficult to open up that blood vessel again with IVTPA alone. So only about 30% of occluded MCAs will recanalize with IVTPA. And when you're looking at an even slightly larger blood vessel, like the intracranial carotid artery, only about 10% of those arteries will open up with IVTPA. So this is a problem. While IVTPA can treat and help many, many patients with more distal branch occlusions, with small vessel disease, and help these patients to make tremendous recoveries, only a minority of patients with proximal large artery intracranial occlusions will recanalize and then hope to get better um, with TPA alone. So this led various investigators to look for other techniques to open up blood vessels which are occluded in stroke patients. Um, this study, which was a study of intraarterial pro-urokinase, a thromolytic drug, was published in 1999. And it was the first randomized trial to be published which looked at intra-arterial therapy for acute ischemic stroke. Again, this was just looking at a thrombolytic agent which is uh, administered directly into the thrombus, into the occluded blood vessel intracranially, and was compared with standard therapy, which at that time consisted of either nothing in particular or IV heparin. And this study, in fact, of pro-urokinase, a thrombolytic drug, was a positive study, showing that intra-arterial therapy could result in a better clinical outcome than standard treatment. Uh, the trouble was that it was a relatively small study. It was never replicated. And as a result, despite the positive results of this randomized trial, intra-arterial thrombolysis was never actually approved by the FDA for acute stroke management and to improve outcomes after stroke. So then the landscape began to change and neurologists and others and investigators began to look at what else we could do to improve outcomes after stroke with proximal intracranial artery occlusions. It so happens that in 2013, there were three randomized trials of endovascular intra-arterial stroke therapy published and all of them were negative. Now, the approach in these trials was somewhat different 
from simply administering intraarterial thrombolysis. Most of these trials, or at least some of them, used various mechanical devices to try to extract a thrombus from these intracranial blood vessels and restore cerebral circulation. But despite the best efforts of these investigators, all three trials in 2013 were negative. And I'm just going to uh, point out some of the high points of these trials. This was one of the first trials published, IMS, or Interventional Management of Stroke. What It was a negative study, and what was the weakness of this study, which I think you'll begin to see is kind of a pattern in these negative trials. Um, there was no imaging confirmation which was required before enrollment in the trial to document that a large artery was actually occluded. In other words, these patients came in with very severe strokes, and statistically, they were likely to have a large artery intracranial occlusion, but this was not proven or documented prior to enrollment in the trial, so that some of these patients probably did not have occlusion of the target vessel. The second trial, published also in 2013, endovascular treatment for acute ischemic stroke, um, was also a negative trial. Once again, no imaging verification of large vessel occlusion was required. So some patients had verification that the artery was actually occluded, some did not. Once again, this was a negative study. The third negative trial of endovascular therapy published in 2013 was a little bit more sophisticated. In this trial, um, the investigators tried to establish that there was an ischemic penumbra meaning that there was a small core of infarcted brain tissue surrounded by a much larger area of ischemic but not irreversibly damaged uh, brain. And this constituted the ischemic penumbra. So the investigators thought, well, uh, this is a very logical way of selecting these patients because they have documented salvageable brain tissue once again, however, for this endovascular stroke trial, um, the results were negative, showing no benefit to endovascular stroke therapy. So these three trials put a huge damper on the enthusiasm that most stroke clinicians had for endovascular therapy. There were criticisms of these trials, and they were legitimate criticisms. One of them, as I mentioned several times, was that no large vessel occlusion had to be documented prior to randomization, so it's possible some of these patients came in with more distal branch occlusions, or maybe had no occlusion at the time they came in, but still had neurological deficits. There was, there could not be any theoretical benefit to these patients uh, for endovascular therapy if they didn't have occlusion of the target vessel. Now, there were other logistical problems in that these trials tended to have slow enrollment, and um, the devices used to extract or retrieve clots were relatively primitive, uh, took a long time to open up blood vessels, and that in itself may have resulted in worse clinical outcomes, or in this case, no benefit to the treatment. Then something happened in 2015. After a couple more years of hard work, there were actually five additional randomized trials which were published all in the New England Journal of Medicine, and all showing benefit 
to endovascular stroke therapy. And it was absolutely miraculous. And I remember I was sitting in the International Stroke Conference sponsored by the American Heart Association when one by one these trials were presented and they were all, they were uniformly positive and resulted in a standing ovation by the audience of several thousand stroke uh, clinicians. It was really a remarkable time. So let me just show you a few of the details of these now five positive trials for endovascular stroke therapy. Here was one of the key points of this, of all of these trials. They used a new device, which was a kind of a stent. And in fact, it is a retrievable stent. And these stents are inserted into the intracranial occluded blood vessel, into the thrombus. And instead of leaving the stent in place, the stent is then withdrawn along with the thrombus. And basically, this retrievable stent extracts the thrombus from the occluded vessel. And this was probably key to the success of these trials. Here was the first positive trial which was published. It was called Mr. Clean. And you can see that this stent retriever was used in the majority of cases, actually almost 82%. Every patient had to have confirmation of the occluded blood vessel in contrast to the earlier negative studies. And the patients were carefully selected and in fact showed benefit to clot retrieval by and large using this retrievable stent. The second trial was done in Canada and was called the ESCAPE trial. Once again, the use of these, um, these stent retrievers was high, 86%. And the patients were carefully selected based on CT appearance. They had to have good collateral circulation in order to establish that most likely these patients, despite having severe deficits, also had uh, salvageable brain tissue that is reflected by good collaterals. And I'll just give you an example of that. Here are CT angiograms that were used to select patients for this escape trial, this positive trial of endovascular therapy. And what you see here is an occluded MCA where the arrow is. So that blood vessel is occluded. But what you still see way out here is that you still see a lot of branches filling. How are these branches of the MCA filling? Not through this occluded MCA, because there's nowhere for the blood flow to go. But the implication is that this patient has excellent collaterals. And that is the type of patient who was selected for this trial, who would stand to benefit despite hours having gone by, um, because they they probably would have salvageable brain tissue despite ischemia because of good collateral flow. Here's an example of less good collateral flow, again, an occluded vertebral artery. But if you look out here, you see much fewer branches of MCA. So in other words, poor collaterals, or at least moderately poor collaterals. And then just switching sides here for a second, I apologize, the images were on the other side here. Another occluded middle cerebral artery and basically zero collateral flow. So these patients were excluded from the trial because they were thought to have irreversibly damaged brain tissue. The next trial was called EXTEND-IA. This trial was done in Australia, another positive study. Here, the stent retrieval was used in 100% of cases. And once again, the patients were selected very carefully using CT perfusion, that is, perfusion software, which allows you once more to assess for salvageable brain tissue. The brain tissue could be ischemic, 
but not irreversibly damaged. And these patients were those who would stand to benefit from endovascular therapy, and this is how the selection was done. Here's an example of CT perfusion being used to select these patients for endovascular therapy. Here you see a relatively small core of infarcted tissue. This tissue is irreversibly damaged, but what you see around it is a much larger area of hypoperfusion not infarcted or not irreversibly damaged. So this patient basically has what is thought to be an ischemic penumbra showing a small core infarct, but a much larger area of ischemic but still salvageable brain tissue. The next positive trial published in 2015 was so-called Smith, sorry, SWIFT Prime, the SWIFT Prime trial. Here, once again, you can see that the use of these mechanical stent retrievers was high, almost 90%. And these patients were also carefully selected to show, using either CAT scan or MRI, to show that the patients had a relatively small core infarct, that is irreversibly damaged tissue, but a larger area of hypoperfused tissue, which is still salvageable. Another positive trial. And finally, the fifth and last positive trial published in the same year was called Revascat. This trial was actually done in Spain. Once more, you see a relatively high proportion of stent retrievers used, 93, 93%. Um, patients here were selected on the basis of CT criteria showing a relatively small area of irreversibly damaged tissue. That is, if you look at CAT scans in certain ways, you can see how much of the brain is already infarcted and how much of the brain is not infarcted. And these patients were selected, once again, in spite of very severe neurological deficits, to have relatively small areas of irreversibly damaged brain tissue. So here's an example of how effective endovascular therapy can be when the right device is used and when the patients are appropriately selected. I just want to draw your attention to the number needed to treat to result in one positive or very favorable outcome in these otherwise very large strokes with poor prognosis. And you can see that the number needed to treat ranges anywhere from about two and a half up to about seven at the most. In other words, you do not have to treat a large number of patients to obtain one positive, very positive outcome. So that in itself is favorable. And if you look at the rate of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage using endovascular therapy, the rate is actually at or below that which you would get with IVTPA alone. In other words, endovascular stroke therapy did not increase the risk of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage beyond what you would get with IVTPA alone. So what were the reasons for these successful randomized trials of endovascular therapy when just two years before, several trials had failed miserably. Well, again, just to reiterate, all the patients in the more recent trials had a documented large vessel occlusion before they could be enrolled in the trial, so you knew you were treating the right kind of patient. The selection criteria were much stricter, and fortunately, using the technology available, we could tell, the investigators could tell, 
when these patients actually had salvageable brain tissue, as opposed to patients who had already kind of wiped out two-thirds of their hemisphere, it didn't matter what you would do for those patients. So those patients were excluded, and patients with salvageable brain tissue were included. The device used was this, by and large, this retrievable stent, which seems to be very effective in uh, very quickly and efficiently uh, extracting clots from the cerebral circulation, and all of this basically resulted in faster treatment of the patient. Uh, imaging to groin time means from the time they have their CAT scan to the time their groin is punctured. This means that faster imaging to groin time basically means that you act more quickly to get the catheter into the patient and start the treatment. So what are the indications for endovascular therapy? And these are now published as national guidelines. Basically, it refers to the types of patients who were studied in the multiple positive trials of endovascular therapy. The patient has to have occlusion of a major intracranial vessel, meaning the intracranial carotid artery or the middle cerebral artery. The patient had to have a modified Rankin score of zero or one. What this basically means is that patients have to have reasonable functional capacity in order to be treated with endovascular therapy, which is quite aggressive. They cannot be severely disabled prior to the stroke. An NIHSS score of greater than six means that the patients have to have relatively severe deficits. Now, by and large, when a patient has occlusion of a major intracranial artery, they do have severe deficits, but occasionally you'll have a patient with an occlusion of a major vessel who does not have a severe deficit, those patients in general are excluded. The aspect score of greater than six refers to using the plain old CAT scan to assess how much brain is already infarcted or irreversibly damaged, and the patient should not have a very large area of brain that's already infarcted because they cannot even theoretically benefit from endovascular therapy. And finally, up until now, we have a six-hour window because, by and large, that's the way the trials were done. We have six hours from onset, which means last known normal time, to treat these patients. The next question that arose was, now that we have a very effective stroke treatment, meaning endovascular therapy and clot retrieval, should we dispense with IVTPA? Or does IVTPA add something to treatment? And basically, not to go through all the numbers here, this is just to show you that when a meta-analysis is done of all of the trials for endovascular stroke therapy, most patients were in fact treated with IVTPA in addition to endovascular therapy, but there were, uh, was a fair minority of patients who did not receive IVTPA. And basically, what this meta-analysis was, that slide was designed to show you, based on this meta-analysis, is that if the patient receives IVTPA prior to endovascular stroke therapy, outcomes tend to be better. So we are not ready to throw out the baby with the bathwater just because we happen to have a more recent, very effective treatment for large artery intracranial occlusions. It looks as if IVTPA helps these patients get better than they would otherwise have if they did not receive IVTPA in addition to endovascular therapy. How about age? This is a concept that comes up over and over again, has come up over the years with IVTPA, and of course, has also been addressed with endovascular therapy. The basic question is, should we be treating very old patients, say patients over 80 and maybe patients over 90? 
uh, it looks as if when you look at uh, multiple trials combined with different age groups, it looks as if older patients do benefit from endovascular therapy just as an older patients benefit from IVTPA. So patients should never be excluded on the basis of age alone. I want to give you an example now of how we might treat patients with endovascular stroke therapy. Very often these patients begin in another hospital where they're treated with IVTPA and then shipped over to North Shore University Hospital, which is a comprehensive stroke center, where we can treat with endovascular stroke therapy. So this concept, this paradigm, is called drip and ship. In other words, they begin the IVTPA drip over at another center, and they're then quickly transferred over to North Shore for further management. I'm going to give you an example. Here it is, an 85-year-old woman with hypertension, COPD, atrial fibrillation on Coumadin, but with a sub-therapeutic INR of approximately 1. She first presented to LIJ with left-sided weakness and hemineglect. She was last known well at 3.30 p.m. Her NIH stroke scale was 16, and I can tell you that that is a moderate to severe stroke. So at LIJ, very appropriately, IVTPA was started, and she was then immediately transferred as a so-called drip and ship to North Shore Hospital. When she got to North Shore Hospital, her neurologic exam worsened. She now had eye deviation to the right, severe dysarthria, complete left hemiplegia and sensory loss, and her NIH stroke scale had increased to 19, meaning that her neurological deficits were worsening. So a CT angiogram was done at North Shore, and I'll just point out to you that while subtle, there are signs already of low density, subtle low density on the CT scan, indicating early signs of infarction. Here's the CT angiogram showing the middle cerebral artery occluded proximally, and here is the corresponding conventional cerebral angiogram, internal carotid artery, anterior cerebral artery, and the middle cerebral artery, which should be going way out here, occluded proximally. The patient was then taken for endovascular therapy, and some of the devices which I talked about, including the retrievable stent, was inserted into the middle cerebral artery where the occlusion was located. And here, again, is the angiographic picture just prior to treatment, and here is the angiogram after treatment showing complete recanalization, complete reopening of the middle cerebral artery. And once again, here is what was retrieved using the retrievable stent and a large thrombus which had been lodged in the middle cerebral artery, undoubtedly an embolus related to atrial fibrillation. This patient made a dramatic recovery and was actually able to go home from the hospital. What does the future hold for us the question has always been, do we have a strict time window for stroke treatment? As you might know, with IVTPA, three hours, four and a half hours. For endovascular treatment, as far as we knew, six hours. The question is, is there a tissue window, which is even more important than a simple time window, fixed and arbitrary for these patients? In other words, could we establish that there is still viable brain tissue beyond a conventional six-hour window, and this has now been proven and very well shown in a recently published trial of endovascular therapy called DAWN, 
and it's an acronym, but it basically took patients beyond six hours and up to 24 hours following the onset of the stroke and showed that when properly selected using perfusion imaging, carefully looking for a small infarct core, irreversibly damaged tissue, and a much larger area of brain, which is ischemic, but not irreversibly damaged, that these patients can be salvaged when treated with endovascular therapy up to 24 hours. This is actually a revolutionary finding and is being implemented at North Shore to now select patients beyond six hours, up to 24 hours um, for endovascular treatment, now proven to be effective in these patients, even at this relatively late time frame. What else does the future hold? Well, there are mobile stroke units, which are basically ambulances, which have CAT scans within the ambulance. And this has allowed treatment with IVTPA in the ambulance prior to arrival at the hospital because hemorrhage can be excluded by the CAT scan within the ambulance. So this has resulted in a markedly faster uh, time to treatment uh, with IVTPA. And uh, here is the interior of the ambulance with the CAT scan. Uh, EMS, of course, is there. A neurologist, stroke neurologist, can actually ride in the ambulance, but more commonly now, where this is being implemented, the neurologist sees the patient by telemedicine or telestroke and assesses the patient, looks at the imaging, and can make a decision with respect to IVTPA while the patient is still in transit. That patient can then be brought to an appropriate comprehensive stroke center for possible endovascular stroke therapy. That's the end of this presentation, and this old slide is meant to remind everybody that stroke is a brain attack analogous to a heart attack. It is a medical emergency, and thanks to now two decades of hard work, we have very effective therapies to help these patients with otherwise devastating strokes uh, return to normal function and normal lives. Thank you very much.